The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. What's up, everyone? Today we bring you Dr. Laurent Michel, professor in the computer science department here at UConn, who works on research involving both software development as well as cybersecurity. We talked to him about the future of electronic voting, the current state of cybersecurity, specifically the warfare between hackers and developers, as well as the incentives of companies to protect their users, and we even dabble a little bit in the state of artificial intelligence. This was a really fascinating conversation, and we hope you enjoy. Good morning, Victor. You ready? Good morning, Kyle. Let's Professor Michel, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. So last Tuesday we had an election, and you know you show up, you fill out a paper ballot, you use an old school black marker or pen, mark your vote, and then you turn it into a scantron, and it just seems so old school. I know one of the things coming out of your lab is enhanced voting technology, electronic voting, and I was wondering if we could talk about that given the current state of voting and the potential flaws that it might alleviate. Sure. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing you bring up because it turns out that old technology is the safest right now. It's the more secure and that's why it was chosen by the state when we advised them around 2006. So when this Help America Vote Act came about after the election of 2002 asking to modernize away from uh, those machines that you were using to pinch holes inside ballots, states were looking at alternatives from the commercial sector and trying to isolate equipment that would be secure, effective, convenient, usable for people. There was a bit of a vacuum. It was difficult for them uh, to isolate something that would be suitable. So what they did, at least in the case of Connecticut, is that they reached out to the university and asking, could you guys help us understand the landscape and try to come up with a solution that would have all these good properties, would be usable, would be simple enough so that mm -hmm. we can understand how it works and how it collates the votes, and fully auditable. And we looked at a number of options. We looked actually at uh, about a dozen systems from multiple vendors, and we tried to pick something that we couldn't breach, that we couldn't actually pretend to be hackers trying to break into the machine and corrupt it to the point where you could change the election of the outcome. And you did this with the machines that we use today? We did this with the machine we use today as well as about a dozen others in total. And the take-home lesson was that we could break into all of them. The one we use today are the ones who were the most resilient against our attacks which is why that's the one that ended up being picked. When you say resilience, what does that necessarily mean in terms of it means that it's difficult for a hacker to break into the machine, change the outcome, and leave no traces behind. If something happens, there are forensics trails that mm -hmm. are left behind. I mean, you've seen these shows, CSI. Right. They're mm -hmm. all about using forensic trail to actually identify the culprit or, or the event that took place. So the machines we're using actually have enough information about them and log enough information about what's going on so that if something inappropriate were to happen, and it's not necessarily a hack, it could also be malfunction of the equipment, you have enough information at your disposal mm -hmm. to figure out what happened and understand the scope of the issue so that you can ensure that the electoral process itself right. stays safe. If the machine is simple, the nice thing is that you can understand it fully and you can develop human processes that involve people using those machines to mitigate whatever weakness exists in the equipment. 
and the one we use is what was the best choice at the time and it remains you know there are two classes of machines right the one we use that you described mm -hmm. are called optical scan uh, where the voters produce a piece of paper market themselves and that is the ultimate record you don't need the machine to count the vote you just need the pieces right. of paper and that's great to have that as a fallback if the equipment malfunctions there are other equipments out there that are probably more natural for the current generation. It's all touchscreen, mm -hmm. it's all digital, you key everything on the screen and it records the vote digitally. Uh, turns out that these ones, when something goes wrong, it's difficult to figure out what happened and to see the extent of the problem because you don't have that voter verified paper trail. Sure. So, so that's the big difference. That's why even though it's old technology, it's well understood. It's simple enough that we can validate it fully. You still have that paper trail right. that you can go back in case something happens. And that and might be the most great. essential part. Mm -hmm. That's the essential part, absolutely. But to be clear, it is still potentially vulnerable. Right? It's still potentially vulnerable, which is why we have very strict processes, chains of custody right. for the memory cards that go into these machines, as well as for the machines themselves and the ballots. That's why you need to have mm -hmm. these mitigation procedures around it to avoid any kind of issues popping up. So do you think this approach will be consistently implemented for Actually, the, the foreseeable future? The, the funny thing is that it's uh, implemented throughout most of the United States. Most places are using optical scan technology. Those, few, those states that used to use direct recording, the place where you have screens and you mm -hmm. encode everything manually, they essentially retired these equipments and switch over to optical scan. So now most of the United States is using optical scan as a technology. And I think that this is going to remain the same for the foreseeable future. Computer systems are complicated entities, and it's too easy to abuse them to actually put your total trust in a piece of digital equipment sure. with no recourse. And paper provides a great recourse. So, What would you need to do to be able to use these other technologies? Like what fundamentally would have to change so that we could employ them? We need to have a number of advances in computer science. The reality today is that it's impossible to guarantee that a piece of software is completely bug free. You know, this is a hard problem and it can't be solved. It's undecidable. You can't do that. So you need to have uh, design processes when you're building these solutions that take security as a first-class citizen during the design phase. As you design this new piece of equipment, you want to make sure from the get-go that you understand the ins and outs of security, what kind of implication it brings, and that you factor that into your design to make sure that you can't abuse them. You cannot build security as an afterthought on top of an existing solution for a different purpose. And that's one of the major limitations, mostly right now in the industry. This is not the natural reaction. We're still building software. And then we say, oh, yes, we have to make it secure. And security gets added afterwards. That's why we're trying to change that mindset even in our, into our educational program, where now we're pushing more and more to have security covered from the freshman year in the very early classes to convince and bring our students to understand that this is a concern that is central to our society and that you need to actually pay attention to it from the very beginning of your design process when you build a piece of software. And so what is the current state of cybersecurity 
you know, like you're saying, is it frequently considered to be this after approach where, you know, you design the software and people then go back and add the security and now you're in a constant arms race between hackers and developers to identify the chinks in the armor before they do and expose the flaws in the system. What is, I guess, the frequency of hacks in software systems? That's, that's a good point. That's yeah. a good question. Uh, I think that we are still in this stage where this is an arms race between the hackers who are trying to breach systems and developers as well as system administrators who try to protect and operate these systems. This is not going to change anytime soon. But what's nice is that the industry has realized that it's very important to take that proactive stance and change their relationship to security so that they do pay attention to it from the get-go. The reality is that there is a huge volume of attack happening all the time. There are no incentives for companies that are breached to actually report on breaches. Sure. Because when it happens, <coughs> if they start talking about it, uh, it may affect their public image. And right. you know, they're thinking about it, right? Should they report about it or try to deal with it internally? That explains why in some of the breaches that happened, it took months before the scope of the breach was fully disclosed to the public. So this is difficult, right? This is a society issue. What incentives need to be in place so that all the actors start behaving properly? That includes the people building the softwares. It includes also the users of it. I think it's critical that the new generation understands the importance of the the exposure that they get, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of information that concerns them that's floating out there into the digital world and what they can do to protect it. Everybody needs to play a role into securing this information and that goes from transactions that you do with your credit card to actually paying attention to any information that you place on sites like Facebook, social media and whatnot. It's very easy, it's convenient to push information out and I'm afraid that sometimes people don't realize how much goes out and how easy it is for other actors to correlate information from multiple sites and create a profile mm -hmm. of you as an individual. Of course they often do it for marketing purposes uh, because you are an end user, you are a target for some marketing campaign or another. And consolidating information from multiple sources can create a pretty accurate profile of individuals. That's where we need to pay attention to what we do and use the right tools to protect ourselves. Given that there's so much at risk, the variability in how the end user can be distributing their information is there anything at the end of the day a programmer can do? There's always that risk that the end user will end up doing something that compromises the system um, anyway. It's difficult, right? The end user doesn't have full control of the information that he puts out there. Once the information goes out, it kind of escapes him partially. So, you know, the end user can't do everything and the programmer can't actually cover all the bases either because Part of that game, of that warfare going on between hackers and honest people, is that the hackers are always trying to find that kench in the armor, that weakness, to try and make it through. It's very difficult to anticipate all of them. Something that's unusual in the digital world is that sometimes a very small kench, a very small defect that could have gone unnoticed for decades, mm -hmm. ends up being a major issue because you have that property that once you find that little defect, you can actually use a crowbar to make an <laughs> opening 
And that opening can turn into a major breach that leaks an awful lot of information. Sure. Uh, if you think about these things that happened with the processors of Intel a year ago, and when we were talking about these vulnerabilities and the timing mm -hmm. of the caches, something very technical, these processors had been out for years and nobody ever noticed until someone realized that it was possible to exploit that weakness to the advantage and to leak huge amount of information. So this is the kind of thing that happen. It might be a small defect, a tiny, tiny little defect, but you can sometimes exploit a tiny little defect to devastating effects. And that's why you can't really place any hope in the developer covering all their bases and catching all of it. It's not happening. So you need to have what I call like layers of security. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not enough to put one protection and the end users protecting their information, but it's having multiple layers around it. The institution, they're the caretaker of that information needs to have multiple layers of protection so that if a hacker finds a breach in one system, it's not enough. He needs to breach a second and a third. Just like walls surrounding middle-aged cities, you need to breach every single one of them to get to the crown jewel that sits at the center. So you were just mentioning these exploits that have been found in the Intel chipset Spectre meltdown more recently, yes. Port Smash. What is the relative contribution to risk of software versus hardware vulnerabilities? Before we start, can you explain what the difference between software and hardware vulnerabilities are? So hardware vulnerability, it's when pieces of logic have been embedded in the hardware itself, in the chip, and it's part of the silicon. It's in there, you cannot change, you cannot upgrade the processor, you cannot modify the soft processor after it has shipped. It's all in there in the hardware directly. And that could be in the processor or in other places. These reports of Bloomberg, nobody mm -hmm. knows whether they are true or not, where hardware Presumably, right, uh, the claim by Bloomberg were that there were hardware hacks on the motherboard of the computers. Not proved, right? Uh, that everybody denies that's the case. <laughs> software is a different thing, right? Software, it's like the, the thought processes that are going on in the brain of the computer. Uh, this is something that's upgradable. You can change the software, and if you find defects, you can upgrade and push new versions out. And it has to do with the logic, the sequence of steps you have to go through to actually execute specific tasks. So it's configurable, it's upgradable, and that's what turns a general purpose machine into a device with a very specific function, because computers are general purpose machine. They can be used for tons of different activities. It's the software that gives it its specificity. And therefore, there is a, a lot more software out there than hardware. Hardware is easier to understand. It's mm -hmm. thoroughly tested, and it's has the generic flavor. Software is far more complicated because for each type of application, whether it's social networking on Facebook, on Snapchat, whether it's uh, application in data center, whether it's what managing your health record or what's controlling a machine on the machine floor in a factory, all this is controlled by software. And therefore, there is an awful lot of software out there, proportionally speaking. So I think that there is a large proportion of vulnerabilities that are software driven. And that's fortunately also where we have the opportunity to address it mm -hmm. because it's upgradable. Right. Once we find a defect, we can issue corrections and push them out. So as long as we have that ability, that will work well. That also means that for these Internet of Things device, which are your toaster, your fridge, 
normal pieces of equipment, but that now have a processor in them together with software running on that processor. So it has all the elements, right? It's a mm -hmm. real thing out there with a processor, with hardware and with software that basically provides to you the experience of using that equipment. When these things are pushed out there by companies, if there are defects, the companies have a responsibility to actually push out these upgrades to those devices so that you don't end up having issues with them or you don't get exposure within your ecosystem because one device was the change in the armor mm -hmm. and provided a way in to the hackers. So you want to protect everything all the time. Why? Because these devices are typically networked wirelessly. So if one has a vulnerability and you get in, once you have the privileges, because that fridge, you authorize yourself the fridge to talk to your network. Once you break into the fridge, then you can hop from the fridge <laughs> to another device. And that's where things start to get really ugly. And pretty quickly, you can take over the whole kitchen. Take over the whole kitchen, then the car, then the solar array on your roof. And, you know, from there, you jump to the electricity grid mm -hmm. and you cause major disruption by pretending that there are tons of megawatts coming from various places and you cause a crash. When you're discussing the approach of programmers, developers in anticipating hacks and breaches, do you set traps within your algorithms, your programs? Yes, actually. To catch people in their attempts? People do that. This is called a honeypot. And there are several. There are pieces of software that pretend to be the real thing, but they're just traps. And the objective is rather than blocking the attacker, and preventing him from doing something. You put that trap with a piece of honey so that it looks attractive to the hacker sure. so that he comes, breach the honeypot, and while he's doing things on the honeypot, you learn about his behavior. Right. You learn about what he's after and which vulnerabilities and which techniques he's using to abuse you. Rather than blocking him, you let him do something in the honeypot where it's not dangerous mm -hmm. and you learn about his behavior so that you can better defend. So, yes, we do that. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking you just catch and I try to identify, but then you're right. You can allow them to keep playing keep to going. figure out their strategy and their approach and their Absolutely. objectives. Now, of course, it's an arms race, right? So the hackers, typically these honeypots are using virtual machines to do that. The hackers are also saying, oh, when I'm doing something, I want to know if I'm running on real hardware or virtual hardware. Because if it's virtual hardware, it could be a honeypot. Mm -hmm. And they can stop short their action because they realize, hey, I might be in a honeypot here. I might be under a microscope and observe. Or change so their behavior. Or change their behavior. So it's an arms race. They know about the honeypots and they're changing their behavior as a result so that they don't get caught. Wow. That's interesting. So you're just taking advantage of the hackers. But what about instances of actually intentionally mobilizing the hackers? Like I've heard of instances where companies will pay a hacker to try to find those. Uh, what you describe is white, white hat hacking. Uh, so this is hacking by people who are ethically sound. And they're doing it because they're hired by companies to actually try and test the solidity of their defenses. It's an important thing. You can't build defenses by just saying, oh, I'm building this fortification around our organization and I went by the requirement and therefore the walls are strong enough to bar any attacker from breaching. The only way to test is to put an attacker in front of the role and tell him, mm -hmm. do your worst, try to get in and then report to us what you found out. And of course, you don't necessarily even tell the people in the organization that this is going to happen, right? Because 
hackers wouldn't tell you if they were about to do this. Mm -hmm. So yes, companies do that. That's a traditional practice. We've done that in the lab, actually, for some um, some companies I can't <laughs> name. And we try to breach with success sometimes of actually finding defects and reporting it to them. And their own security teams had not figured those out. And that's where they're getting value out of this. So the companies who engage in these practices are probably at the forefront and trying to be very responsible and do everything mm -hmm. they can to actually minimize the exposure of the information that they are keeping on our behalf. So it sounds like this employment of white hat hacking is not standard, but should it be? Like, do you think this is something that should be more widely adopted, not just by this upper echelon of more conscientious companies? That would be great. I don't know what kind of incentives you need to put in place. It's a policy issue, right? Mm -hmm. How do you incentivize companies to actually do their utmost best to protect information? Most companies will see everything as either a cost center or a profit center. And unfortunately, building a strong security is often seen as a cost of doing business. You have to do it in order to fulfill your normal duties as a company and your responsibility to your users as well as your shareholders. We need to find ways uh, without falling into the, the travails of excessive regulation. We need to find ways to incentivize people to do the right thing for them. This is a current issue if you look towards the legal space uh, of how to deal with, with this issue. And it feels like you're kind of encountering these data breaches in various companies every week or so. Do you think that would incentivize companies just from seeing that risk? as outweighing the costs that they normally associate with the security? You would think so, yes, that companies are going to see this exposure as a risk and that alone should motivate them. But like every other risk, they will say that if there is a breach, they will try to understand the liability that it represents for them. They will try to insure against it. Now there is actually a sector in the insurance business that has to do with insuring cybersecurity risks. And I think it's going to be booming because companies want to protect against liabilities mm -hmm. once information is leaked and they are responsible for it. So companies see that as a cost center. There is a liability. There is a cost associated to it. Would they rather carry the full risk on their own? Would they rather insure for it? Or would they rather try to reduce the risk? We have the same thing for individuals where putting security systems on their homes, right? They're doing this to reduce their premium. Same thing, or people who are putting anti-theft device in their cars, right. that's to get a better deal with the insurance company. And you might have a response of the society that goes in that direction, where companies are incentivized by having breaks in terms of the cost of their cybersecurity insurance, if they have proper cybersecurity hygiene to begin with, and properly secure the system. So it might very well go in that direction. But this is a field that's still in its infancy at this stage. Now, in the world of cybersecurity, where exactly does your research fit in? So what I've been doing, so I've worked on the voting aspect. Uh, think of it as this white hacking mm -hmm. type of an activity where we were trying to breach the machine to find out which ones were the good ones. I've done more of that with two centers that I'm involved in, uh, CSI and C-Cube 
where we've looked at IoT devices and the vulnerabilities they might have. And these cover several things from routers and switches you might have in your home to home security systems. So there's this aspect, what we call penetration testing, that I've worked on. I also work on things that are more technical these days, which is how to defeat cryptographic functions by exploiting what we call side channel information, that is extra information that may be leaked when you're actually using a device normally. Normally it has some information stream, but it may leak other things because as you know, your device heats mm -hmm. up, your device creates electromagnetic radiations. So there are things that are observable. It's it consumes footprint. power, it leaves a footprint. That footprint normally should be invisible to most people, but if you can pick it up, it leaves enough breadcrumbs to weaken the cryptographic function that were supposed to protect your information. Can you actually leverage that to your advantage and defeat the system? And it turns out that in specific cases it can be done. So I've worked in that area trying to expose that and that's a way to incentivize the people who are creating these devices to build in countermeasures to mitigate the risk. Right? There are clear solutions, but once again, if you need to have hardware or software to do it, there is a cost associated to it. If the perception of the risk is lower than the cost, they won't actually protect against it and build that extra protection. If they realize that the hack is really, is very real, can really happen, then they are properly incentivized to protect. And so what motivated you to get into this line of research? I mean, I know you've been doing this for a while now. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess that Throughout my career, I was fairly technical, right? So my background is in optimization and artificial intelligence. And I was building lots of systems. I've always done that. I actually get a kick out of building software systems. And at some point around 2006, when the state contacted the university to help them understand voting machines, I was asked whether I wanted to be part of the team because of my expertise in system building. And I thought, I don't know enough about security, probably won't be able to do anything, and I doubt it, but then I tried and I realized, wait a second, actually I can contribute. My expertise in actually building real systems is very relevant and can um, be beneficial to find problems. And then one thing led to another and I've invested more and more over time. I'm certainly not a core cybersecurity mm -hmm. person. There are people who are really cryptographers. That's not my area. I'm more system security in a sense. Where do you see the state of artificial intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting evolution. I think that sometimes the perception by the public with everything that we see today, mm -hmm. uh, with the various algorithm and the digital assistant, Siri and whatnot, it gives us a sense that we've come a long way in building uh, better AI capabilities. If you have followed a little bit on the deep learning techniques, that's all the rage these days, they're extremely good at doing these sophisticated classification on analyzing images. But if you followed, they can be fooled as well. Mm -hmm. There was this test, uh, I don't remember on top of my head, it was done not so long ago by putting a picture of an elephant in the middle of a picture of a living room. And that fooled, I mean, that makes no sense. Any human would look at this and say like, an elephant has no right. place in the living room and it's not going to change your ability to recognize a mug or a chair mm -hmm. or a coffee table. However, the AI, once he saw the elephant, he lost it. And he started to pretend that the chair was a giraffe or something <laughs> like that. He completely changed its classification of the other elements. So 
Right now, we have systems that can, in certain circumstances, mimic human cognition and are pretty good at very dedicated tasks, but it's still at the mimicry stage. It's not quite uh, human intelligence, so we're not there. And maybe the media contributes to propagating this sense that mm -hmm. we have had this big revolution. There are successes, don't take me wrong. And we're much better at creating very good robotics. There are companies in the Boston area who make these Boston walking dogs, right? right? Boston Dynamics. There, it's, you know, that's great. So mm -hmm. we've made great strides. There is no doubt about it. But in real terms of intelligence, there is still a long way to go. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Unfortunately, I think we're out of time. But this has been a fascinating so conversation. <laughs> I'm realizing how much I don't understand about the warfare that goes on <laughs> and, you know, that, that nobody, the public is really not made aware of. Yes. The incentive of companies to hide breaches makes total sense. Thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. Really um, appreciate yeah. it. Have a good one. This podcast is made possible by funding from the Office of the Provost and the Office of the Vice President for Research. Thanks for listening.